Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good evening. I'm Ruth Spellman. I'm Chief Executive and General Secretary of the WBA, and I'm actually delighted to welcome you all here this evening. It's a really great pleasure to introduce the fifth of the WBA Annual Lectures, and it's entitled A Place for Learning, and what better place than at the RSA? We are so delighted to be partnering with the RSA on this event, and we hope it will be the start of an ongoing dialogue between our two organisations, both with such a strong educational heritage and a real passion for learning. The RSA, 260 years old, um, born in the Age of Enlightenment, WBA roots in the Industrial Revolution, a relative newcomer, but really created for us um, a whole sense of what's possible for the working class, for ordinary people in this country, people who wanted to aspire to a better life and wanted education to be the, the, the key thing that was going to get them there. So uh, I think we're both on the same mission, and tonight is an opportunity to, to hear from Matthew, the chief executive of the RSA, on his thoughts about some of the current challenges that we face and some of the opportunities that we now have. Because for every challenge, I'm told, there is an opportunity. Before I kick things off, I've got a few housekeeping points I must mention. I've been asked to mention, so I'm going to do my duty. First of all, can you turn off your mobile phones? We're filming this evening and streamlining on, streaming on the web. So a very big welcome, particularly to those who are joining us today from Nottingham, from the RSA WEA group in Nottingham, but to all of you who are joining online. And for those who want to tweet or get involved in the discussion that's going to happen later, uh, please use the hashtag RSAWEA. Immediately after the lecture, uh, the chair of the WEA, Trevor Phillips, will chair a Q&A session, and Matthew and, and he will be having a conversation and will be inviting questions. And at the end, please stick around, because there will be a drink, which is uh, part of this event, no charge, and uh, we hope you'll be sticking around to talk to each other about what you've heard and getting a message out there about the ongoing importance of education in the modern world. So before introducing our guest speaker, as I said, Matthew Taylor, I want to say a couple of things about the WEA in adult education, and I promise to be brief. First, the WEA is the ultimate devolved educational organisation, with a physical presence in over 2,000 venues across England and Scotland. Our education offer is as diverse as our students, and it's tailored to their needs. We educate over 50,000 students every year. A WA class provides an oasis of calm, a place for reflection and creativity. It enhances social interaction, cultural understanding, health and well-being, and it provides opportunities to learn and new skills for work and for a productive life into older age. We have a very simple philosophy. It's never too late to learn. As we look to the future, to the post-industrial society, which replaces the world in which the, the WBA and we all grew up in, the lifelong learning of opportunities provided by the WBA are, in my view, even more relevant than they've ever been. People are working longer, and they're living longer. It's a fact. We need to get used to that. We have long outgrown a world in which education to the age of 16, 19, or even 21 is nearly enough. That's why we support the work of the RSA, and particularly its recent report on good work. And we also welcome Theresa May's announcement yesterday 
that there will be a review of the whole post-18 system of education. After two campaigns in the last five years to save adult education, these are promising signs that the government and policymakers are listening. So this lecture is incredibly well-timed, Matthew. For many adults, but particularly for those with little in the way of formal qualifications, I would say one thing. The current education system is simply not fit for purpose. Like our economy and our society, the education system itself has to adapt and to change. Now you can find more, more out about the work of the WBA and particularly the membership of the WBA and the work of the RSA in the foyer. So that's all I was intending to say tonight about what we're about and what we do. May I now introduce our guest tonight who's delivering the, the WBA lecture for 2018. Matthew Taylor needs no introduction, I'm sure, to many of you. He is Chief Executive of the RSA, but he has previously been Chief Advisor on Political Strategy to the PM. He's also been the Director of the Institute for Public Policy Research. He is known for having his own point of view on matters politic, but also matters which in some ways transcend politics. He's a commentator on our life and times, well respected, I think, by many. His prominent and frequent broadcasts, his authorship and his public speaking roles have brought, brought him to the attention of influencers everywhere. And we're really, really looking forward, Matthew, tonight to hearing your thoughts on how best to deliver education which is accessible to all. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Matthew Taylor. Thank you, Ruth. It's nice to be welcomed to the RSA. Um, I spoke to someone earlier today, and uh, I said I was doing this lecture. And they said, oh, that's interesting, because normally you, you chair uh, fascinating speakers on fascinating topics, providing fascinating speeches. It'll be interesting, they said, to do the reverse. <laughs> I kind of know what they meant. Um, I had a great aunt of whom I was very fond. She was clever stylish, somewhat acerbic single woman who'd worked her way from the foreign office typing pool to the ministerial private office. But in the later years of her life, she became housebound. This was down to physical frailty. Her tiny flat on the outskirts of Brighton was on the third floor. But it seemed also to be her decision. I suggested hiring her a wheelchair, promenading by the sea, but, but she refused. It occurred to me that her movability was more psychological than physical. My mother, of whom I'm inordinately proud, is now a bit older than Aunt, than Aunt Eileen when she withdrew from society. She shares the family intellect and sense of style, uh, but she's also incredibly busy and very sociable. Now, I'm sure there are lots of reasons for their different ways of living the third age, but if I was to choose just one, it would be that my mum has never stopped learning. Since retiring, she's learned to be fluent in French with the qualifications to match. She's become a local historian, much in demand for local talks and tours, and most recently, a Tate Modern Guide, with the knowledge and appreciation of contemporary art way beyond the insights of her more Philistine son. Learning hasn't only kept her young and positive, it's meant that she is a source of happiness, support, and inspiration to her friends and family, including her three proud grandchildren. So for me, the power of lifelong learning is up close and personal. 
It's one of many reasons I'm delighted to deliver this WEA annual lecture. But there's another rather sad lesson to be learnt from the story of my Aunt Eileen. And that is that when your life has long since fallen into a fixed pattern, avoiding regret can more powerfully motivate than the possibility of something new. I wonder whether this fear of regret at having to acknowledge missed opportunities may sometimes be what deters those who have been failed by the system from taking up learning later in life. So I try, as I get older, to stay open to the idea that my established patterns of life or thought might be mistaken. I have, for example, recently regretfully concluded that my affiliation to West Bromwich Albion is a profound error <laughs> that has brought me little but deep frustration and grinding despair. I've also started to question my lifetime commitment to policymaking in think tanks, a political party, and in government itself. It wasn't easy for me to admit as a lifelong policymaker, but let's face it, a great deal of policy fails, particularly if that policy is seeking to address a complex challenge or trying to change the way people behave. Indeed, the more complex the challenge, the greater the desired behaviour shift, the more elusive is success. Now, sometimes policy fails catastrophically. Think of the Child Support Agency, the London Underground Public-Private Partnership, the contracting out of probation, but more often it fails because while some improvement is achieved, when the funding and focus is concentrated, as soon as other priorities come along, things return more or less to how they were. So if policy is judged by whether it achieves a shift in the underlying equilibrium of a public service or a social system, failure is much more common than success. Now, there are many reasons for failure. Short-termism, political opportunism, ideological inflexibility are all amongst them. And today, we have a government denied capacity, confidence and credibility by the Brexit process. But I also, I, there are also, I believe, two inherent, non-trivial reasons for the scarcity of success. First, policy tends to be too scattergun. It seeks to address one or more variables that generate a system-level outcome, but not to address the system as a whole. The consequence, and public service managers will recognise this phenomenon, can be that the initiative gets absorbed into the system without making much impact, or worse, it generates an unexpected and unwelcome reaction. One expression of this is what's known as Goodhart's Law, namely that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. The RSA's Director of Education, Julian Astle, published a powerful paper last year highlighting the way accountability pressures put in place to improve learning have led too many schools to prioritise gaming the system over their core educational mission. The other inherent danger in policymaking is path dependency. So generally it takes a long time to win support for a policy and even longer to implement it. But whilst in a laboratory the environment can be held constant while an experiment takes place, the real world is complex and fast moving. And so as the policy is rolled out and things don't go according to plan, the danger is either that the policy is sustained for too long despite the evidence of its problems or Conversely, that it's abandoned prematurely because it isn't delivering the outcomes envisaged. So housing policy is an area particularly characterised by policies that have been maintained despite their obvious downsides. Skills, by the reverse tendency, to abandon projects before we even have any evidence of whether they work or not. Too rarely are we sufficiently agile to adapt the policy as it comes into sustained contact with reality. As I say, in areas ranging from housing to skills, we see well-intended initiatives which fail to work as expected, 
But rather than being adapted and adjusted, they're simply abandoned in favour favor of further flawed schemes. <clears throat> so partly in response to these two issues, this uh, issue of the scattergun nature of interventions and path dependency, the RSA has developed an approach which we summarise in the phrase think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. We're better at ideas than we are at catchphrases. But um, <laughs> on the one hand, we advocate understanding a social problem in systemic ter systematic terms. Why is it that a dysfunctional equilibrium persists? What would an alternative equilibrium look like? On the other hand, we advocate an opportunistic and agile approach which seeks to identify and work on parts of the system where change looks most possible and adapts interventions to reflect experience and opportunity. So in this speech, I'll broadly apply this approach to the challenge of raising the profile and impact of adult learning. I'm going to describe three ideas, two of which are systemic in nature and one which is more speculative, more experimental. Before I do that, there are other reasons I was happy to give this lecture. It wasn't just that I was impressed by the names of the previous WEA annual lecturers, including Tanny Gray-Thompson, Vince Cable, Joan Bakewell, Jenny Murray... Nor was it that my old friend Trevor Phillips is a hard and, to be frank, dangerous man to refuse. Um, I was keen because I need no persuading of the social, economic and cultural value of adult education. Nor only is the research evidence of that value growing, much of it expertly marshaled by the WEA, but so are the economic and social challenges that adult learning can help to meet. Low skills population ageing, mental illness, social isolation, civic and political disenchantment and disengagement. And I was keen because the value of adult learning is systematically under-recognised in politics, in policy and in spending. As a thought leadership organisation, the RSA is a very big online and social media footprint. So I'm pleased that we're able to use our channels this evening to help address that lack of recognition. I hope you're all sitting there helping us to trend on Twitter for the third time this month. And I was keen because this lecture is a chance to recognise the contribution made by hundreds of thousands of workers and volunteers who, despite very challenging conditions, ensure that adult learning continues to change lives and strengthen communities. In seeking to grow that impact further, the first idea I want to explore emerges from the government's recent response to the review of modern employment, which I chaired. This is, in fact, my first public speech since the government responded to that review, so I shall start with some overall comments. In doing so, I, I recognise I'm being both optimistic and giving the government the benefit of the doubt. But surely another advantage of getting older is a willingness to defy fashion. Um, at the broadest level, I, I hope the government's response to my review marks two important points of inflection in the public discourse about work. First, the moment at which we recognise that while labour market flexibility has important benefits for the economy, for business and for individuals... It's not an unalloyed good. Flexibility involves trade-offs with other goals, including social inclusion, economic security, fiscal sustainability. For a Conservative government to recognise this and for it to take small but important steps to ensure that flexibility works for individuals and for society, as well as for business, is an important moment. The government's response to my report, Good Work, was also entitled Good Work, and I'm heartened that the government seems genuinely committed to the idea of improved work quality as a national goal and one for which the government will hold itself accountable. This commitment was underlined not only in the response to my review but in the industrial strategy itself. 
In terms of the detail of the government response, it contains important measures, some of which including the right to day one information, corporate transparency over labour practices, rights to request an employee contract could, over time, turn out to have significant impacts. A lot rests on the outcome of further consultations, including on employment status and higher pay for non-guaranteed hours. I personally will be pressing hard for action to make it much easier for workers to have independent representation and rights to information and consultation. In comparison to what is taken for granted and valued in most parts of Europe, what I recommended is a very modest step, and it, it seems to me it's about time we got over our national suspicion towards industrial partnership. But in lobbying the government over its response, something which took place over many months, one priority for me, something I kept banging on about as I spoke to officials and ministers, was a recommendation which has had little coverage, but which I believe offers an important opportunity to bring new force and focus to adult education. This is the commitment to develop and promulgate, although not impose, a national framework of employability skills. So that was the recommendation in my report, and I'm glad to say that the government responded positively to it in its response. Now, this idea, a national framework of employability skills, might sound like a modest idea, but I believe it could have system-shifting consequences. At its most basic, it's simply that the government should encourage the many organisations, colleges, universities, employers, that already have employability frameworks to recast them under headings and definitions agreed at a national level. Such a national framework is likely to encompass key categories such as creativity, communication, initiative, teamwork, digital skills. The framework would evolve as different aspects under each broad heading were defined and as the demands of work changed. And it would be adaptable so that different institutions and sectors could define what these generic attributes mean to them. It would need to combine sector-specific and core knowledge with non-cognitive skills and character development. Because without domain knowledge, skills and character disposition can seem unanchored and ephemeral. But the idea seeks to address the systemic problem that although many employers put increasing emphasis on what are sometimes called soft skills, these skills are difficult to capture, describe and evidence. I heard a story a few weeks ago of somebody who'd interviewed a young person for a degree apprenticeship and in the course of the interview had said to this young person, do you have any leadership skills? any leadership capabilities, and the young person had said, no, I don't think I have. But it was only at the end of the interview that it became clear that this young person had organised a football team for kids on his estate. Now, I can tell you, because I've been involved in that activity in the past, organising a kid's football team demonstrates a lot of leadership skills. <laughs> but I think that happens time and time again, that people have useful capabilities, experience, but it's not easy to capture, unlike the other side of your CV, your formal uh, qualifications. So having hundreds of slightly different approaches must make it harder than it needs to be to take employability seriously. With one nationally recognised framework, even if it was little more initially than a washing line to which bits of learning, experience and capability could be attached, these more generic skills might come to be more widely recognised and acknowledged. The grander vision is that this side of our CV, this softer side, this more generic side, could over time come to be as important as the more traditional evidence of attainment and experience that we tend to focus upon. The progressive potential is that people's accounts of themselves come to encompass not just formal learning and job history, but also informal learning, volunteering, life experiences, and a variety of competencies and capabilities demonstrated in work. This could enable us to have a fuller, rounder account of people's personal development, and one which grows throughout their lives 
It might also encourage richer conversations in education and work about how courses and how jobs could best be structured to provide these more transferable skills. And by the way, such skills aren't only demonstrated by success. They can also capture what people have learned from things that haven't worked out. Such an approach would, for example, enable me to record that the two tasks I was given by Tony Blair when I was his head of political strategy were firstly to ensure that he remained popular in the UK, and secondly, that New Labour remained the dominant strand in the Labour Party. Obviously, this is work in progress. Um, <laughs> so I hope the WEA will join the RSA and others in encouraging the government to take this, this employability recommendation forward with enthusiasm. Any framework has to be voluntary, um, but to make a difference, it needs widespread buy-in across education and employment. The employability framework is a system intervention at the national level, but the RSA is also advocating a step change in educational participation through a local system-wide intervention, and we call that cities of learning. The RSA is far from the first organisation to see place as critical in developing a culture of lifelong learning. In the UK, the citizens' curriculum developed by the Learning and Work Institute has had measurable impact on the lives of people in places such as Rochdale. The UNESCO Learning Cities have recognised place and citizen-centred approaches in places as far apart as Beijing and Bristol. In the 1990s, the Learning Cities Network in the UK developed a method which they described as using lifelong learning as an organising principle and social goal. The RSA in its work has benefited from all these approaches in developing a prototype of what a place-centred learning system can offer people in their local economic, civic and social lives. Working in partnership with UFI Trust, Further Education Trust for Leadership, Digital Me and City and Guilds, we call this intervention the City of Learning. It's a way of thinking about how the learning assets and resources of a place can be combined creatively to support greater engagement in learning and progression to new opportunities. The core design, which is whole place and whole system, combines three elements. Local leadership of all types, from civic to commercial to political to educational to cultural. Wide networks of formal and informal learning institutions. And a technolo technological platform built around open badges. Open badges are micro-credentials that provide recognition of learning and motivation to learn more. They've been adopted by employers, universities, colleges and community organisations across Europe and the US. And we see in them a means both to network organisations who provide learning experiences, from employers to the arts, and to create multiple access points for learners. The evolution of Cities of Learning says a lot about how we here at the RSA think about policy and change. It started with a research report on social mobility and digital learning. In that report, we looked at learning cities in places such as Chicago, San Diego and DC, which were using a digital platform and open badges. In a subsequent RSA essay, A Place for Learning, written by Tony Bresen, who's sitting in the front row, we mapped out a vision of whole place leadership and we sought the right partners to join us on a journey to explore the idea and practice. A number of cities had an interest, but things really clicked with Brighton, Plymouth and Greater Manchester. And for the last year, we've been engaging with schools, colleges, employers, large and small, major cultural and arts bodies and organisations, local authorities, museums, public services, including health, libraries and community groups, to develop a series of city blueprints. We've published all this work, it's all on our website, and as we work towards at least one City of Learning pilot in 2019, the network of interest in our approach is growing steadily larger. As an ideas organisation, uh, we are able to draw on our growing fellowship of change makers. And this is what helps the RSA to go beyond recommendations and into action. 
Cities will learn will only succeed if it has momentum and sustainability in the places who are our partners. But if we get this right, then we can really begin to shift the engagement with learning and better progress in work and life, especially, of course, for those who haven't been able to benefit from more traditional academic routes. Our first cities of learning might be candidates for my third and final idea, the one which is more experimental. Most of us have been impressed by the impact of the city of culture process. Uh, this has been mainly, of course, on the winning candidates, but losing bidders have also developed strong local cultural networks. And beyond that, millions of us have visited the cities or heard about their achievements. Sadly, Brexit means we're no longer candidates for the European city of culture. Now, as you would expect from the chief executive of an organisation with arts in its title, I'm a great fan of arts and culture and advocate for its wider economic and social benefits. But I'm also an enthusiast for learning and for its wider benefits. So how about an annual award for places of learning? These might be cities, but they might also be towns, counties, villages, even organisations. The criteria for the competition might include, first, a whole place or whole organisation commitment to learning, evidenced by high levels of participation throughout the place in question, with a particular focus on those who've missed out on formal learning. Second, a willingness to test and develop a range of innovations, technological, organisational, cultural, designed to open up new paths into and ladders through learning. Third, an openness to exploring and testing the wider impacts of learning for other public policy goals in areas like health, productivity, civic engagement. And fourth, a desire to be a showcase, to open up and share the place or organisation's experience of learning, inviting people in to explore new ideas, to experience what works, and to learn from what doesn't. Unlike cities of culture, every year there might be a number of winning candidates, each with different things to offer and display. For UK places, this is a chance to celebrate the creativity, which is a national strength, but also address our weakness in skills and productivity. But if we wanted to be really radical and show that leaving the EU doesn't mean abandoning our role as an international force, perhaps we could make this a European or even a global award organised and hosted by the UK. As Brexit approaches, people are beginning to ask what image of Britain we want to project. As an initiative, the Places of Learning Award might not take off. Uh, but if it did, even if it did, it would be something to facilitate change rather than shape it. But to have a go at leading a global competition would speak not only to a commitment to learning, but also to a confident, outward-looking, generous spirit. In the face of cuts and apparent political indifference, it's tempting to be pessimistic about adult learning. This is completely understandable, but as teachers often say to their students, look for the bigger picture. Think of the accelerating pace of change. Think of the impacts and possibilities of technology. Think about population ageing. Notice that people are increasingly spending money not on things, but on experiences. Notice the World Values Survey that shows people across more and more of the world now place the pursuit of self-expression over material affluence. If we ask ourselves whether over the long term lifetime learning is going to become more or less important to national flourishing, there is only one credible answer. Both the WEA and the RSA across nearly 400 combined years of existence have been advocates and innovators for lifelong learning for all. We have proud histories of achievement but surely, just like my mum, the best is yet to come. Thank you. Oh, that was terrific. Thank you very much, Matthew. Uh, my name is Trevor Phillips. I am 
In this connection, I'm the chair of the trustees of the WEA. Some of my colleagues are here. Um, I first should say thank you to the RSA for uh, letting us into this fabulous room and uh, giving us a... Your, your picture's up there? Nice picture, isn't it? No, no, oh, it does. No, no. no, I'm going yeah, yeah, yeah. to have myself painted in when I leave. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I heard that was the plan. I was thinking right across the top. Anyway, um, that, uh, and also, to normally you say this at the end, but I want to say it now for the uh, rather brilliant way that we've been treated and handled by the RSA staff. Thank you very much indeed. Um, now, as you'll have heard, Matthew's a kind of really annoying guy. He won't mind me saying this, because we've known each other a very long time. Um, he's really annoying, A, because, you know, you go in for the marathon at the same time as he does, and he ends it an hour and a half before you do, and that's really annoying. And secondly, many of us can express ourselves quite well in English. Some of us are really, really erudite but very few of us manage to put those two things together in the way that he does, and you've heard an example of that this evening. Um, I'm going to have the opportunity uh, to get my own back by torturing him for five or ten minutes, uh, but then uh, the floor is going to be open to you. The event is being streamed. Um, Twitter is being lit up and provoked, even as you speak, by uh, our RSA colleague, Marie, isn't it? Marion, uh, thank you very much, um, and you can join in that. When we come to you, um, I'd be grateful if you told us your names and uh, any organisation that you're associated with. So um, let's start with your um, idea, Matthew, of think like a system, act like an entrepreneur, which has become a, a sort of RSA uh, signature. How does that work, do you think, if we were ever able to get a national education strategy of the adult education strategy of the kind championed by the WA and by other uh, institutes of adult learning, how would you have, how could you make a strategy like that work but still have flexibility and innovation locally? Because we know national strategies quite often become a straitjacket rather than a platform. So one way that we, we, we think of systems, uh, because sometimes when people talk about system thinking, it can become incredibly kind of uh, techy and over-complex, is we have a relatively simple way of thinking about a system. And the way we think about a system is to say that in the end, there are kind of three things that drive human behaviour. Authority, which is kind of rules and regulations and strategy and all that stuff. Norms, social norms and belonging, the tribe we are part of, the kind of sense of duty that we have to our group, and then thirdly, our individual aspirations. Yeah? So I think if you, if you want to affect a system change, what you need to say is, well, how do those things line up at the moment? And why is the way in which those things work together not achieving what we want? And how might we have to rethink all of those things in order to get to where we wanted to? So, you know, whilst I'm not going to develop a kind of learning uh, strategy, a holistic learning strategy from scratch, I can tell you how I tried to do that in the work in order to illustrate the point, how I did it in my employment report. So in that report, yes, there were recommendations about government regulation and how that should be improved and strengthened in certain areas. But it was also really important to me to get across the idea of good work. 
because I felt there were a couple of kind of rather pernicious, not often spoken about, but rather pernicious views about work which undermine our capacity to have good work. One is a kind of master and servant view of what is involved in the employment relationship, and secondly, a view that there just will be, always be millions of rubbish jobs. And I wanted to say, no, neither of those things are true. The good workplace is one where there's a relationship of mutual respect uh, in, with the workforce and the management. And secondly, there's no reason why any job can't give people some scope for fulfillment and development. And then thirdly, in that review, I tried on the whole, and this didn't make, make, win me many friends on the left, but I tried to avoid stopping people doing things they wanted to do. So if people wanted to work through the gig economy or whatever, I didn't think it was our business to try and stop them, although there were regulatory issues. So I think the approach to learning has to be, well, what is the right framework of rules and regulations and systems and structures? How do we deepen a kind of social norm around learning so that meeting someone in the street saying, what are you learning, is as natural as saying, how are you? Um, and how do we think about people's individual incentives uh, to learn, and particularly about the individual incentives of people whose lives are difficult and whose experience of learning might not have been great? And then in answer to the final bit of your question about the local side of that, I think a lot of that has to be done locally. Because actually, I think that social norms are more established at a kind of community and local and city level than they are really at a national level. So I kind of think that if you said, well, let's have a British campaign for learning, it would be a bit hollow. It would be a bit kind of, you know, trite. Whereas I think if a city leadership and lots of institutions in that city said, we are going to become a learning city, it could touch people's kind of pride in place. Um, you know, it's very, very. I was chatting to someone the other day about London, and they were just saying, "Look how incredibly diverse London is." But the really interesting thing is, if you look at surveys, you know, whether you're a kind of 18-year-old kid living in Walthamstow or a kind of middle-aged wealthy person living in Kensington, you both say you've got pride in London. It has a kind of meaning to you. So if you if you believe that values and a sense of kind of, mute, of, of collective action is important to anything, then you tend to want to do it locally because that's where you're going to get the traction. Well, let me prod that a bit further on this issue of norms, because I, I think you're completely right in the way, or I, I'm completely persuaded by what you said about the way in which you make these things happen. But on the issue of norms, we, we at the WA produce getting on for two million hours a year of adult learning. Now, in a bit of our work which is involved which basically is people perhaps like you and me and will be in 20 25 years time where we still want to learn about japanese art or whatever it is and you know we get together and we make that happen the norm there is to be better informed is good but for a large part of the population that we want to reach disadvantaged people actually Learning has always been a sort of hostile act. And in fact, the experience of learning hasn't changed that hostility. If anything, it's made, it, it's made learning as an activity even more alien. Now, how do we begin to flip that norm? And I'm slightly leading you here, but I, I'm interested in your thought about the way that place plays a part in that. Well, I mean, I think there are people, you know, I noticed... Tom Schuller sitting in the front row, there are people here in this room who've been real pioneers, Tony Breslin, in, in answering that kind of question and thinking about innovative ways of, of um, changing the attitudes of people who might have felt learning's not for them. Um, but I think we, one of the kind of bits of insight that we use in quite a lot of our work when we're thinking about change, that second half of change, that kind of entrepreneurial side, the opportunistic side, is to think about life moments, actually, 
So there are life moments when, when people have to learn whether or not they want to. So, you know, think, for example, of parents when they have their first child. They have to do an immense amount of learning, and perhaps you don't call it learning, they just call it adapting, whatever, but they do learn, and they learn from peer networks, and they learn online, and, and actually, it's very interesting, and you know, I didn't get into all the kind of way in which online is changing all of this in the lecture, because it's, it's another subject, but it's very interesting to me how the quality of online information that now is provided to young parents has been, you know, massively improved. It's, you know, you kind of, if, if, if you're plugged into the right systems, they, you know, every week they say, this is what you'd expect this week, what you should expect this week, this problem might occur in the third week. It's really fantastic. So I think that um, lots of really good work has taken place to bring learning off the pedestal, bring it into people's lives and get people to feel that learning is something that is about their day-to-day -day lives, not about something that happens in an institution where people are experts and, and kind of pour a knowledge into the top of your head. And I think a particularly interesting possibility is looking at the key moments in your life when you need to learn in order to thrive. I mean, I, I, I'm very in tune with that. I love the idea that part of what learning is doing is helping people reinvent themselves and you know um, my colleagues will correct me if I'm wrong but I think something about like a sixth of our hours are to do our uh, English right. uh, speakers of other languages and you know given my own background actually moving from somewhere else to here is the biggest kind of reinvention yeah. that and, you can and, have. And people who arrive are incredibly motivated. Yeah yeah. yeah. Um, the, the capital of learning the, the culture um, capital culture analogue what do you think um, you could see as the legacy? You know, the, the big thing that people talk about in capital culture is legacy. What would be the equivalent? What would be the analogue for um, the city of learning, the culture, the, the capital of learning? Yes, yeah, so I, I, you know, I said, and it's the third of my three ideas, that it's the one that is, as it were, the most experimental and doesn't, you know, not, it, it would achieve something as part of a broader kind of process. It might be a catalyst. I think what the city of culture teaches us is, is that those cities had a lasting effect on the self-confidence of that place. And I think that's important. Uh, I think, secondly, that they provided experiences and they demonstrated innovations which people learned from and copied, and so they had a kind of influence there. Um, uh, uh, and I, I think that, thirdly, what they demonstrated... OK, albeit in a kind of artificial context, but what they demonstrated was the wider impact that arts and culture could have on a city as a whole. And what I'd be wanting to do with Learning Places is all of those things. It's about a statement about self-confidence. We believe we can be a learning place or organisation. It's an opportunity for innovation and ideas which people can pick up on and then spread. Um, but most of all, perhaps, it's an opportunity to say, look, if you really, really do learning properly, it's not just that people learn more. Other things start to happen. There's a, there's a sense of cohesion. There's a sense of pride. Other kind of dials like productivity and other things might start to move as well. And I don't think we're going to find that out unless we do something pretty intensively. Um, you just... Um, well, you haven't just published, but you're, the, 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 the big story has been your Good Works report. It is still... Government react, responded to it positively. Question of whether... Not quite as positively as the press release suggested. Have you worked for New Labour? I can't really criticise about spin, can I? Yeah, yeah. I'll, let's not go there. No, no. But anyway, uh, the, 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 whether th something's going to happen uh, with the speed and intensity that one would like, one doesn't know. But, you know, it's all, it's all bathed in a warm grow, uh, glow right now. Um, this week's story, of course, is the tertiary education mm -hmm. review. Now, who knows what's going to come out of that? Um, 
but of course it's, interest, it's of interest to us mm -hmm. because at least in theory, this is about all tertiary education, not just universities, though you wouldn't get that to read the newspapers. How, how would you, if it had been handed to you, how would you approach it? Um, well, I, I, all I can say is three things that I did for the employment review, which I'm very glad I did. Um, and so I would recommend that Philip Auger, I think, is chairing this review, that he does these three things. I think, first of all, define your, define your mission yourself. I don't know exactly what his terms of reference are, but I was given terms of reference, and then about a week later I said, this is what the review is about. And, you know, they didn't contradict, but, you know, I kind of took ownership of it. And I think he faces, or the review faces, a similar challenge to me, which is that people thought my review was all about Uber and Deliveroo. And so I wanted to say very honestly, it's not all about Uber and Deliveroo, it's about good work. And I think people think his review is all about tuition fees. And so he needs to say, no, no, this is not all about tuition fees. Don't get obsessed by that issue. It's about the broader question of access to learning and how we become a more of a learning society. Secondly, I, try, I established very early on in my process a set of principles. You know, I said why I thought good work mattered and what I thought good work represented. And this was way before the conclusions of the review. So I, I set out my stall. I think, similarly, my advice to him and to the review would be do the same. Establish principles quite early on. Say, this is what a successful system would look like. And I think if you do that and people say, OK, right, we understand what it is you're trying to aim for, you'll widen the conversation from a conversation which is about interest groups fighting for their one particular little bit. And then thirdly, we did a kind of roadshow. We went around the country and we uh, had little kind of hearings and um, uh, we heard evidence and the public were invited. And that was important. It was important to get out of London. And it was, I heard, you know, I heard important things. I was influenced. You know, I, my view, for example, of the importance of representation at work independent representation work came because I went around the country and people said that if they were casual workers, they felt that if they ever criticised management or raised a concern, including things like sexual harassment, they wouldn't get the hours, they'd lose the hours. And I thought we need to try to address that issue. So I think I would also say go out and listen to people in real communities. I think you do those three things, that's a good start. You know, it's still you know, a tough job he's got. Okay, well we'll pass that advice on. Um, right, let's, let's open it out. Who would like to uh, ask Matthew a question? I don't know if we have or whether we need microphones in. Oh, we have got, we've got loads of microphones. Right, who's first? There is a lady on the, in the back row and another lady next to her. Yep. Hi, my name's Sally. I'm from Crickwood Library. Uh, we don't have a library at the moment, so I'm very interested. We're working towards getting the library open. It's going to be a community library. But I'm, also, I'm really interested in the idea of um, changing the way of learning, taking it out of like a classroom setting. And I was wondering if you thought about the kind of walking and learning idea or like they have in Scandinavian countries, um, learning in the outdoors and things like those, the qualities of that kind of learning where you may be, there's a place in terms of a geographic location, but not necessarily a classroom. So a different form of learning where um, people learn on the hoof. And also, um, because that's not enough to ask, um, I wondered if you thought about uh, taking learning to places where people are and kind of setting up a stall for learning there, such as, you know, gathering places like coffee shops or um, pubs or even interrupting schools and doing different kinds of learning. So interrupting kind of learning. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and uh, uh, as I said earlier, there are people in the room who've experimented in all sorts of interesting ways. And the WEA takes the learning to all sorts of different places. 
Um, I think, in a way, this is about, it's about blurring the boundary between capital L learning and small L learning. I mean, you know, hopefully we're all sitting here learning, and not necessarily from me, but just by reflecting on the conversation, the topics that we're discussing. And, and as I say, you know, um, you know, my mum, who I'm been banging on about tonight, she's actually in the room, but I won't point her out because she'd be embarrassed enough as it is. But um, where uh, is Matthew's mum? No, no, we're Wait, not going to get on. into that. But <laughs> she's, you know, much to my horror, she's kind of rewiring the house on the basis of YouTube videos. You know, so um, uh, um, you know, uh, she's had a good innings. But no, um, uh, uh, so I think you know, learning is ubiquitous. Yeah, absolutely ubiquitous. So I, this is about how we say that learning is everything from a conversation that you have which, in which your ideas change through to doing a degree in philosophy at a Brussels Group University or whatever. And, and I think that systems sometimes get in the way of allowing learning to be seen as that in that kind of ubiquitous way. And, but, you know, as I say, I mean, Tony's got his hand up already. There are lots and lots of examples of learning that don't take place in the classroom. We just don't, we don't talk about them enough, I don't think. It, it's, it's worth... Anybody who's interested in this, talking to some of our WEA colleagues, because we do this all the time and everywhere, including out in parks, you know, our green branch in the northeast is uh, very much that. And by the way, I think we've just, I believe we've just signed a, an MO, a memorandum of understanding with the Library Association, is it? Oops, sorry. Oh. It would be... <laughs> On that bombshell. It would be... <laughs> Do you want to wait for the mic? Please? Sorry. Ruth, Ruth is just going to tell you what I shouldn't have said. We did. <laughs> we agreed before the event that if there was any tricky questions, we'd pass them on to Ruth. Absolutely. So, very briefly, um, this partnership, which um, we haven't yet signed yet, but it's about really integrating what the WEA does into, into a library environment so that WEA classes will be running in local libraries. Because, you know, they have a footfall issue. We know that the um, capacity of libraries is often exceeds the numbers of people who now visit libraries. They also have an ageing issue, so fewer young people are going into libraries. So we believe if we make them centres of family learning, where parents will go in and with their children, but the parents themselves are then able to join learning circles and do WA classes and actually get involved back in learning. It's a very low threshold for them to cross. It's a community resource, it um, celebrates learning, it's, it's a learning place, um, but it's not dressed up as some kind of learning institution, it's, um, it's the local library. And we have a similar shared philosophy about learning. So again, I think it really comes down to what we do to open out access as well as how we stimulate the appetite. And, and I do think it's about organizations working closely together. And I think we in the education sector have got a big lesson to learn about getting out of our box, um, which the WA does with its adult learning classes, but which I think, you know, FE colleges and HE colleges, you know, basically don't interact as much as they could. We don't produce those learning pathways for people, which um, everybody talks about, but they virtually don't exist. I think okay. if someone, I, just on that point, I, I think if someone, an alien, arrived on the earth, what, one of the things they would find odd is the way we have big walls outside our educational institutions in all sorts of ways, yes. you know, literally and metaphorically. They'd kind of go, but this is a, this is a, a, a learning resource why why is it kind of feel like an institution which is almost celebrating it's the hardness of its balls you know exactly. doesn't happen in wakanda i can tell you um uh, lady with the red microphone 
thank you. Um, Matthew, it seems to me that there's two sorts of strands that are coming across in your talk, sort of the ubiquitousness of learning and ongoing conversations we're having now and the sort of um, activities your mum was doing. And then there's a sort of policy side, institutional side, and education very much in the service of employability. And that was very much the thrust of your talk, um, soft skills and the value of those, etc. Um, and I'm just a little bit about uncomfortable about this education and culture in the service of economy the whole time. Particularly, I mean, for instance, I'm happily retired or liberated, as I prefer to call it, from full-time employment and pursuing my interest in Egyptology, philosophy, etc., in developing local sort of you know, interest groups, precisely the sort of spin-off that you're saying that happens when you start learning. And now, with the sort of concern that's happening at the moment about sort of increasing automation, robotics, and people not going to have jobs because robots are going to be doing them all, the need for sort of valuing the furniture of the mind in education is going, I would have thought, to be quite an important consideration. But that's not to do with sort of this economic education in the service of business. I mean, I loathe universities advertising, come and study with us and you'll earn more money. Okay. Just okay. I'm going to come to this gentleman here next, and then, uh, no, no, Matthew, answer that question. I'm just d directing the uh, microphones. No, I, I agree, but I don't think that I don't. I, I agree that there is a danger that if you emphasise the instrumental side too much, you downplay the intrinsic side. But I actually think the arguments can go together. But so, but I, I, I when I worked for the Labour government, we used to say the more you earn, the more you learn. And the more you learn, the more you earn. And I always thought that was a slightly kind of narrow way of talking about the world. But, you know, for, if there is evidence, look, put it this way, every bit of public spending has to be assessed for its cost effectiveness. So we, we, we have to do it anyway because we're not going to be exempted from that. So we may as well make the best case we can. I'm going to take the gentleman there, then you, sir, and I'm going to come to my colleague Peter Threadkill and, and uh, Tony Breslin. So, you, sir. Uh, Tom Schuller, I'm currently chair of the uh, Governors of the Working Men's College. Uh, Matthew, I wanted to ask, first of all, strike a pessimistic note, but give a sort of optimistic opening for your, through the question at the end. I mean, the, the pessimistic note is this. You ended by saying there can only be one answer to your rhetorical question about lifelong learning, by which I assume you meant yes. But a year or two ago, I think in this building below, there were three secretaries of state gathered, Vince Cable, uh, David Blunkett, and David Willits, all of whom were very intelligent men, powerful men, secretaries of state in charge of potentially lifelong learning and all committed to the ideas, yet none of them actually carried through uh, anything like a strategy for lifelong learning. Some of us were at an event at Wolverhampton on Friday, 20 years on from the learning age that David Blunkett wrote a wonderful forward for. We weren't just in nostalgic mode, but there was a, a considerable amount of regret about where we'd uh, gone or not gone in the last 20 years. So how can you be so confident that the answer is yes? And what, what, what are the politics needed uh, to make sure that that answer works. And my optimistic opening was about, I think you're absolutely right to say it's going to be learning cities. I mean, a driver has to be at that local element. But I suppose the question is nationally, how do you, how do you provide a framework that enables, really enables cities to take that forward? Um, I guess my optimism is that I think ultimately if there is a social need and a social demand, 
look, we've been living with austerity for many, many years. And in the times of austerity, there's a kind of hierarchy of, you know, th th there are certain services which, for whom which the sense is if they collapse, you know, it's completely catastrophic for a government. And there are other services which can decline with less political consequences. And that's where we've been. And that's not been comfortable because in the end, when deep cuts are being made, it's NHS and defence lobbies that are louder than our lobby, might, this lobby might be. But, as I say, look to the long term and ask, you know, do, is there any reason to believe that the demand for adult learning won't grow? Is there any reason to believe the need for it won't grow? And, and, and I think the demand and need will grow. And so we have to look to a time when, you know, hopefully there is a point at which we are beyond austerity and we can start to talk about what priorities might be. And anyway, it doesn't all rely on public spending. There are lots and lots of, you know, it, when one talks about voluntary initiatives, it sounds as though one's uh, uh, parroting a kind of crass version of the big society. We don't need public funding because there's all these great volunteers. And I understand all the issues around that, but there are some fantastic initiatives as well that people are taking off their own bat, you know, keeping libraries open, keeping things happening, setting things up. And I think that's happen if that's happening in this difficult environment, if the environment improved and you've got that energy, then I think things could change. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask this gentleman. I'll ask people to speed up their questions a bit. Hi. Uh, my name is Hugh Dames. I run an adventure learning program in Crystal Palace Park for primary schools. Um, the idea of that is to support the teaching and learning in the classroom and uh, taking it outside and uh, creating a bit of adventure with it. Um, just, I think the key thing I, I wanted to say that that journey started years ago when I did a, uh, a community asset festival for a local school in Walthamstow that looked at how could assets in the local community, skills, relationships, businesses, institutions, etc., support learning in the school. And when you start thinking like that, when you start looking at breaking down things into assets, that everybody has something to share, we all have an experience. You don't have to be highly educated to have a point to get across that someone wants to know about. I think it changes the, changes the way we view learning, and I think it changes the opportunities for learning, and I think that's, the, if you don't mind me suggesting, that, that's a step towards learning cities. Community asset festivals, we all have something to share, and, and bring them together in a, in a, in a, possibly in a, in a festival of, of learning. It's always important, I think, the, the, the thing I get from your question, apart from recognising the, the, what you say, is that, is that this is a two-way process. We, we're just coming to the end of a two-year thing called the Citizens Economic Council, which is a kind of deliberative process around economics, involving 50 citizens, well, hundreds of citizens, but 50 in particular, working through a deliberative process over two years to get their heads around economic ideas and economic concepts and start to express economic opinions. And one of the things we'll be reporting when we report on that is that, is that we expected it to boost the confidence and awareness of the citizens. What we found was that the experts who had to come and speak to them found it an incredibly powerful experience because they had to talk about the economy and economic ideas in a way which ordinary citizens could relate to. So I think that what's exciting about initiatives like yours is it's not just about what learners learn, it's also about creating environments where you know, people who think they're the experts or the teachers are being challenged to do things in different ways. And I think that's really powerful as well. You mind if I just take two or three yeah. comments and then we'll come back? Tony, um, Peter Threadcombe is my uh, colleague trustee. And maybe one more? I'm just looking to see if there are any other women who want to speak. There's right in the corner. Right in the corner. Doesn't look like, doesn't look like a woman to me, but there oh, you go. Oh, well, I know, but I'm yeah. sorry. You've got better <laughs> eyesight than me. <laughs> that, that's fine. So, to, Tony, Peter, and the person in the corner. Yeah. Uh, Tony Breslin, author of two recent RSA reports, A Place for Learning and Who Governs Our Schools. Um, I, I want to ask the question I want to ask really, Matthew, is how do we get the conversation going outside this room? 
uh, it seems to me there are three barriers that we, we must try to overcome. One is this pervasive kind of low-level anti-education thing that runs deep in our culture at various levels. So, for instance, those plummy voices forever saying there are too many kids going to university, when you know they're not talking about their kids, you know they've been to university, you know they're talking about other people's children. And at the other end of the scale... Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and then at the other end of the, 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 the kind of instrumental side, there's no point doing a course because it won't lead to this or it won't lead to that. Can we, I know it's difficult, but can we get back to learning for learning's sake? That actually to be learned is something to celebrate and something to achieve. And there may be benefits of employability, but I'm really worried in a world where work won't be the be all and end all in the future, that if we sell education only on that, by definition, when work goes, education goes too. So I just wonder how we get over those, those barriers and finally the risk barrier that a lot of people's experience at school has not been good, so getting them back in, which I know WA are fantastic. Yeah. Peter? Yeah, we'll take, I'll take all three to finish here, yeah. Peter? Right. Can I say, Peter's first of all, I was a primary school teacher, so I do sympathise. Um, I'm a great fan of today's... Um, great fan of today of the Today programme on Radio 4, and this morning they say people are living longer and working longer. What is the consequences for adult education? Back in the corner. Um, my name is Abdi Fatah. Um, the, um, I have two questions. One is uh, how do you engage with the people you want to change? The, for example, the, it used to be before uh, think, um, analyze, and change. But right now, to uh, make the change effective, the, that has to be changed into feel, see, change. So the, how you are going to engage with the people. My second question is the adult where the um, people go for learning, you know, the adult uh, learning venues are kind of derelict. So how are you going to uh, make uh, uh, the, the, the environment conducive to learning? Okay, so there are two sort of broad themes coming out here. One is how do we get anybody else besides us who are into it? thinking about this. And secondly, I think Peter's point about the broader demographic trends and where they're driving us. Yeah, so uh, I, mean, I used this rather trite example before, but, but I, I do come back to it, which is in the end, we, we want a society where it is odd not to be learning. It would be a strange way to answer a question. You know, uh, it, you know if you say to someone, oh, what do you do to keep fit? Now, obviously, some people go to the gym and all of that stuff, but most people will say, well, I, you know, I, I try and walk to the bus or I, you know, I take my kids out to the park. People have an answer to that, and they won't think it's an odd question to ask. Right? But, but it still would feel a slightly odd question to say, what are you learning? And people would, most people would say, well, I'm not doing a course at the moment. And they'd think that was the answer to the question. And we, we'd somehow got to get into this position where what are you learning is an ordinary question. And people say, oh, well, I've just, I've just been reading this and I'm thinking of doing that and I've, I've learned that and I've talked to someone. So that, there's something there. And I don't, know, I don't know how you do it. It's like a kind of meme. It's a cultural thing. I, 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 look, I do take Ruth's point. I do sometimes think that people in the learning establishment are their worst enemies in the way in which they talk about learning. You know, it's like I've suffered from my learning, now it's your turn, you know. So it's kind of like, 
you know, and I think we've so I think we've got to lighten up a bit and 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 talk about it as as being fun and you know and you know it's great to to, to end with the question about about older people because it's you know it's where I started from you know I absolutely think that the single most important determinant of whether people in the later stages of their lives are going to be healthy and happy and sociable and give back is if they continue to learn and I think the idea. Uh, you know, I mean, I think this is something which is changing, actually. I think we're starting to see the evidence around depression and the relationship of depression and isolation to various medical conditions. I think we're really starting to see this. And I, I think one of the revolutions is that we've all, you know, I grew up in a world where learning was about young people. And I think we will increasingly say, no, learning, you know, it, it, of course it's about your whole life, but it's a really, really important part of the strategy for what you're doing, you know, toward, you know, the later decades of your life. Well, look, it is now uh, about 10 minutes past where I'm supposed to stop and get us out of this splendid room. However, you'll be glad to know that I will be and my colleagues will be herding you towards some drinks uh, downstairs in the Benjamin Franklin room. I'm sorry that we aren't able to take more questions, but there'll be an opportunity to talk, uh, I think, to Matthew to, and to uh, WA and ND. Anthony in the back row, sitting and there. He's the person leading on the Cities of Learning project, so he's the person to talk. Wait, wait, could you, could you there, wave, Anthony? Anthony there. there you go. He's Mr. Cities of Learning. Right. Mr. Cities of Learning at the back there. Um, so I hope you'll join us downstairs uh, for a drink and to continue some of that, uh, the conversation. But thank you for those, uh, for those questions, from those of you who were able to give us questions. Um, there is more information about both the RSA and the WEA out in the foyer, and I suspect uh, you'll be importuned with more of it downstairs. Do you want to hold it up? There we go. <laughs> After, after that short message from our sponsor, um, uh, it just leaves it for me to say thank you again to the RSA, uh, to th thank you to Ruth for her opening remarks, and um, also to say thank you to Matthew. That he's always embarrassed when I say this, but unfortunately it's always true. There are probably, I think, four people that I know who are at least as smart as they think they are. And Matthew is one of them. <laughs> and, uh, <I'd, laughs> I am not one of the four, but he's demonstrated it in spades tonight. So thank you very much, Matthew. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.